Hello, and welcome to the Sea Control Podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. Today I speak with Ray Powell about his recent paper, Game Changer, the Philippines' Assertive Transparency Campaign, how the Philippines rewrote the counter-gray zone playbook in 2023. Here at SimSec, we aim to further international maritime peace and security through an exchange of ideas and the rigor of critical thought and writing. If you haven't already, please check out simsec.org for new articles on the most important maritime topics. If you would like to contribute to the discussion, check out the Write for SimSec tab to learn how you can submit articles for publication. Finally, I highly recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Hello and welcome aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Colonel Raymond Powell, U.S. Air Force, retired. Uh, he's the founder and director of Sea Light. Uh, we're discussing his recent work, Game Changer, the Philippines' assertive transparency campaign, how the Philippines rewrote the counter-gray zone playbook in 2023. Uh, Ray, welcome aboard and welcome back. Uh, you were just on the show with Jared in uh, 456, and uh, you discussed Chinese gray zone tactics. So this is a, a Beautiful continuation of that discussion. Uh, but could you please start by reminding the listeners a little bit about your background, please? Yeah, thanks, Nate. This is uh, it's, it's great to be on with you guys again. Um, really uh, had a good time last time, and, and I enjoy this format. Uh, yeah, so I joined the Air Force when I was 19 years old. I uh, was failing out of college and did not want to admit to my father that I was failing out of college. So I thought that I would play the uh, patriotic duty card and and so enlisted. Uh, a few years later, I managed to get my commission. But my my career was very eclectic. I sort of bounced around a lot of different career fields. The One of the common threads, though, was I began as a Vietnamese crypto-linguist. So even though I'm not a natural linguist, I was forced to learn Vietnamese, and it gave me kind of a fascination with Southeast Asia. Uh, I ended up, uh, my very first assignment was to the Philippines, and I kept sort of coming back to the region over and over again until finally, uh, about a decade ago, I got an assignment as the U.S. Air Attaché in Vietnam. And so, of course, that that sort of uh, tightly focused me on Vietnam for a bit. And so, uh, and then finally, uh, probably my 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 penultimate assignment as Defense Attaché in Australia. Even though it was further south, there was still lots and lots of discussion about the South China Sea and Southeast Asia, as uh, Australia had many security concerns to the north. Oh, and I'm sorry, I should mention that since I retired in 2021, I, I came back to Northern California, where I have a uh, a lot of family connections. I did a short little uh, uh, fellowship at Stanford and then got involved in this uh, volunteer transparency initiative that has sort of consumed my life. Uh, and as a reminder to the listeners, uh, all opinions expressed here are strictly our own and not reflective of any of the institutions with which we might be otherwise associated. And also to timestamp this conversation, we are speaking uh, January 30, 2024. Listeners, if you haven't, please go back and listen to to episode 456 for those who won't or could use uh, a little bit of a, a memory jog. Uh, could you please help us with some of the dynamics and some of the players in the South China Sea and kind of give us a, a brief overview of uh, what the PRC is doing in the gray zone. Sure. Yeah. In fact, when I first started looking at the South China Sea as a young person that, you know, in, in the Air Force, 
most of the South China Sea discussion was about who had control of which feature. I mean, we call features, we call you know reefs or shoals or you know whatever they are, uh, islands. Anything was was just called a feature because it was so hard to classify what everything was. I mean, it, it's, it's something that's you know a few meters above water or below water at high tide or low tide. And so there was since really the the early seventies, there's been kind of a push to gain control of more features to be able to stake a greater claim. And specifically because there was a lot of belief that there was there were hydrocarbons, there were oil and gas beneath the, the surface. And so that was the discussion in you know those early days. And there were there was occasional bloodshed over over who would get to have which feature. That has changed a lot really in the last say 15 years where especially as you know during the island building campaign of you know the sort of about a about a decade ago China began to set up island bases now these are not real islands they're what we call artificial islands right they were built on top of reefs but they are bases they they have airfields they have ports uh, and they have quite the ability to allow China pr- to project power all the way across the south china sea which is a really new and and um, I mean it was their own game changer, fr- frankly, and it took a lot of us. It really took the world kind of by surprise, and you know this is maybe one of the most effective gray zone tactics that we've seen because nobody was quite sure what to do about it when they saw the dredgers and all the 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 uh, the, the ships sort of descending on these 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 reefs, and all of a sudden we see the reefs begin to change, and of course there were lots of protests. But in the end, nobody was really able to stop it. And so, you know, at the end, you know, now China is claiming increasing control, not just over the feature itself, but around all the water of the South China Sea. And we've begun to hear much more about this old Chinese idea of a nine dash line uh, claim all the way around the edges of the South China Sea and an increasing willingness by China to enforce that claim by beginning to try to regulate and control the activities of the coastal states and especially the Philippines. And the reason for that, you know, we kind of maybe pick two, you know, one is because the Philippines has more been more of a, a problem, if you will. They've been more um, assertive in trying to defend their rights. But really, I mean, a lot of it is geographical. The, the specific features that have been most contentious have been in the Philippines exclusive economic zone. That'd be Scarborough Shoal, which China seized in 2012, and is a a very important Philippine fishing ground. And of course, the very uh, much in the news, Second Thomas Shoal, where China has effectively set up a blockade of the Philippines uh, ship, uh, a World War II era ship that's now a rusting hulk that serves as the Philippines uh, outpost at that location. So how is assertive transparency uh, changing uh, Manila's previous efforts? And uh, frankly, what, what are their goals with assertive transparency? Right. So in, you know, up until about 2016, uh, the Philippines had been very um, assertive. Uh, and of course, they had they had filed what we called the arbitral tribunal case at The Hague in 2013 after the seizure of Scarborough Shoal. And so they were trying to use, in, in that sense, lawfare to make their case that this seizure was illegal and that China's actions, other actions in, the, in the, what they call the West Philippine Sea, were uh, illegal. But 
2016, they elected a president, Rodrigo Duterte, who had a very, very different view on the world. And he was very interested in trying to move from a U.S.-centric foreign policy to a China-centric foreign policy. And in conjunction with that, over his six-year term, he was he actively downplayed any uh, interactions between the Philippine Maritime Security Forces and China's in that in the West Philippine Sea. And so there was just sort of a dearth of information. You know, nobody knew what was happening in the West Philippine Sea. To the extent there were confrontations, they were just these quiet confrontations. Uh, and of course, 2022, uh, President Bongbong Marcos took over as uh, as, the, as the next president, and for the first six months or so, uh, the foreign policy was largely the same. But in January of this year, he made a, a radical decision in a lot of ways. It centered around a an incident in which a China Coast Guard ship pointed a, what, the, what they called a military grade laser, or what's known in law enforcement as a dazzler, at a Philippine Coast Guard vessel in February of last year. And the uh, the Philippine government took about a week to, dis- to to consider what it wanted to do because it had the evidence. It had pictures, it had video, and uh, there was a lot of internal discontent in the government about this previous six years where nothing was said, and a lot of people really wanted to be able to speak out. And something that had happened the month prior in January of last year was that President Marcos had replaced his national security team uh, with sort of you know people who maybe had a different view on the world. And that new national security team, in the end, you know, together with President Marcos, decided to go ahead and release the evidence. And almost immediately after that, became very assertive in not just releasing reactively the evidence of 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 harassment and coercion and those kinds of things, but proactively, assertively going out and finding more evidence. And so suddenly we began to see Philippine Coast Guard aircraft and, and, and ships and, and, and the Navy going out and allowing pictures to be taken and release the public of vessel swarms in various, you know, near various Philippine claimed features or, you know, more of these harassment incidents and all of that began to make it into the Philippine and international media. And the what, what ended up happening because of that was there was a lot of, of course, national outcry that, hey, this, this is going on. But there was also a lot of international outcry. And the Philippines found that it was getting a lot of support. And so I think that this probably encouraged them to continue this very uh, assertive transparency approach and a certain transparency was was a term that we coined but it seems to to encapsulate what the philippines was doing by essentially adopting as a counter gray zone tactic the use of visual information um and it's it, i think it really has been as i as we put in our our piece a game changer speaking of your piece you outlined i think it was three different conditions uh for success that that you kind of identified our our manila's goals uh, what were those? Yeah, and I and I, I kind of hinted at them just a minute ago, right? So the first is the that assertive transparency enables the building of national resilience, and that is essentially the idea that under normal circumstances, most uh, people in any country are internally focused. You know, you're concerned about the economy. You want to, you know, how much do groceries cost, and you know, where do my 
kids go to school and you, you, you're not really interested in sort of foreign policy except as it affects you. But uh, assertive transparency kind of brings the effects home to the uh, the average person so that the nation begin. And this is very, of course, of course, important in a democracy. The nation allows the government room to address these kinds of issues. So we've just seen, uh, you know, the president Marcos has put out, um, you know, new budget for the for the military and it's it's there, and, and, and maritime forces generally. And th- we're seeing increases in the budget. We're seeing more attention paid toward um, countering disinformation coming from uh, foreign sources in the Philippines. So those kinds of things happen because the nation gets behind the government and says, yes, we want something done. We're seeing these pictures. They're very disturbing to us. And we don't want to just sit back and let it happen. Uh, so that's the building national resilience condition that we, we talk about, condition to success. Uh, the second is, as I said before, the building of international support. And since the beginning of the year, we've seen repeated, for example, uh, reaffirmations of U.S. treaty commitments to the Philippines. We've seen the commitment by the government of Canada to provide dark vessel detection capabilities to the Philippines. We've seen a, a an offer of additional radar systems from Japan to the Philippines. We've seen all of these different, you know, and also just moral support. We saw India, which is famously non-aligned, come out after a bilateral engagement with the Philippines and re, and, and affirm their their agreement with the 2016 arbitral tribunal case, which the Philippines won over China. So all of these things are, of course, very encouraging to the government and a second condition for success. And then the final condition that we we talk about is the uh, imposition of reputational costs on the perpetrator, in this case, China, so that when all when all whenever these things happen, it's very clear across the world what China is doing. And this costs China something. They are forced to surrender some of the the moral high ground that they attempt to to build through other ma- uh, means. For example, they they have the, a rhetoric that says we're all about the you know, win win in all of our relationships, or we're the champion of the global south. Well, I mean, you're you're not exactly the champion of the global south when you're pushing around a developing country, um, and so these three conditions resilience, international support, reputational costs, you know, kind of, as you call them, three pillars, because that's the way we put it in our picture, but three conditions for ultimately deterring or defeating gray zone activities. And so, you know, we thought it was helpful to kind of paint that picture so that in the Philippines and elsewhere, people can take a look at what the Philippines are doing and, and put it in some kind of context, because ultimately the question comes up, why are we doing all this? You know, why are we picking a fight with a big power? One thing that I, I wanted to ask you about, because I found particularly enlightening, uh, was a vignette that you put in the piece about a journalist that had embedded on a Bureau of Fisheries and Aquatic Resources vessel. Could you, I guess, explain that for the listeners? Uh, because it, it it really kind of put, uh, put rubber to the road for me as far as being able to see uh, what yeah. this strategy looks like. So this was a, a very... Um, <laughs> exciting weekend in in the Philippines, and actually there were three different things happening almost simultaneously. Uh, there was a second Thomas Shoal resupply mission that was going on. There was uh, following that there was going to be this they called it a Christmas convoy, where a, 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 flot- a little flotilla of mostly civilian ships 
went out to the West Philippine Sea, the Philippines, West Philippine Sea uh, outposts and brought gifts essentially for Christmas. Um, but right before any of this started, these three, uh, we call it BFAR, uh, fisheries uh, boats, went out, and there's, they're not very big boats, they're 30-meter boats, went out to bring essentially oil subsidies and food to the fishermen, the Filipino fishermen out at Scarborough Shoal. So Scarborough Shoal, of course, was seized by China, and they only allow in small boats. So even larger indigenous fishing boats have to sort of stop at a certain point, and then they can they can push out a smaller boat to, to go and do any sort of low-level fishing, and that's all that China will allow in Scarborough Shoal. And so, you know, in order to be out there, you have to, if you want to stay out there for longer and catch more fish, because this is a very inefficient way to catch fish, we're having to go back and forth with this little boat. So BFAR decides to bring out this these subsidies, <clears throat> and when they arrive, they are confronted by China Coast Guard vessels, which open up on them with water cannons. And on this particular occasion, as part of this assertive transparency campaign, the BFAR uh, had embarked some embedded journalists. And so in near real time, these the, these journalists are on their on their you know phones with the cameras and all these things documenting all of this uh, these water cannons being deployed against these smaller uh, BFAR vessels by, by these hundred meter China Coast Guard ships. And it was really a stark uh, scene because of course, Fishery ships are civilian ships. They don't. They're unarmed. They were bringing food and and oil subsidies. Um, so it was essentially a humanitarian mission that was being met with water cannons. And it was probably one of the most um, vivid examples of how assertive transparency can impose direct reputational costs. I mean, of course, you know, Philippine citizens got up in arms. There was widespread uh, outrage, but but then it led into the rest of this weekend, where, of course, it was another very contentious uh, uh, resupply mission at Second Thomas Shoal. And then the Christmas convoy essentially was turned around uh, by the uh, the opposition of, uh, you know, another China Coast Guard vessel and some Chinese Navy vessels. So, you know, the entire weekend was, you know, kind of a crescendo, really, in December for all this year-long uh, uh, story. But, it, you know, the, the, the fisheries vessels were maybe the most, one of the most um, uh, really stark and vivid examples of, one, bullying, and second, the effect of assert, assertive transparency as the, as the counter tactic. Obviously, events are still unfolding. You know, this is a very dynamic uh, space. But from your perspective, and obviously you call this a game changer, but where do you see this going? How do you see this affecting the dynamics? And frankly, is Manila succeeding? I think that Manila is unquestionably succeeding in the first two pillars, right? Um, and even in the third pillar. So, I mean, th there are real reputational, re reputational costs being imposed. The question is, does all of this ultimately lead to the desired outcome, which is the deterrence or the, the defeat of China's gray zone uh, strategy? And I think a lot of this comes down to, one, how long will the Philippines be able to sort of maintain this posture? Because there are tremendous pressures in every country to accommodate Chinese demands. And this is, you know, these generally will come from all, you know, all places, not just the Chinese embassy or Beijing. These come from 
business people who are trying to do business with China. And of course, they get messages that say, your government is making it very difficult. Uh, you know, they, there will be threats of embargoes or, you know, I saw this for three years down in Australia where, well, I don't know that, you know, because Australia is 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 talking about this counter interference campaign, I don't know if Chinese students feel safe anymore in Australian universities. Maybe they won't come anymore. Maybe your imports of maybe the imports of Australian coal and wine might have problems and we might not be able to bring them in right now. So all kinds of China has a, a big toolbox of coercive act, uh, actions and, of course, you know, can come out with a carrot from time to time and say, you know, if, if this all went away, we might be able to work something out. And so, you know, these kinds of pressures are on the Philippines, first and foremost. And so question now as we turn from 23 and, uh, 2023 into 2024 is how long will the Philippines be able to stay, sustain this posture? And that's where, you know, obviously the level of international support and the amount of resilience built up and those kinds of things will play a crucial role in sort of giving the Marcos administration room to, to maneuver be important for the Marcos administration to obviously you have to continue to talk to the China and you know if they, they if they do offer you inducements to change tactics I, I'm not I'm not the the leader of the country I'm not no one to tell them what to do but I would I would certainly advise not to you know sell it for a bag of ma magic beans you know there's there's sort of a uh, you know make sure you get something tangible and long term in, in exchange, not just sort of a promise that maybe things will be better if, if you'd stop. The other the other real question is, will the Philippines be alone in this? And I've had a number of conversations since we uh, published our piece by people in the uh, in the in the US space and in the international space, you're just sort of thinking, hey, what are the lessons for the rest of the world? Can we find other places, other domains, whether it be you know the, the financial domain or the, the the air domain or other places where assertive transparency by other countries, not just the Philippines, could be successful in ultimately maybe forcing China to tone down its gray zone strategies, because that's really what we're that would really be what success looks like is essentially China no longer having a free hand in the in the gray zone where things are opaque and deniable because nothing is opaque and deniable anymore. So for as long as it's just the Philippines, I think the pressure on the Philippine government will be intense. But if it begins to be other places and in other domains, I think that maybe it, we can you know really see our way forward to a, a deterrent and, and and ultimately a defeat of gray zone tactics. Well I'm certainly going to keep an eye out for that. But is there anything else that you would like to add for the listeners? Anything that uh, that I've missed? Well, I think you know we're we're looking ahead to 2024, and you know the, the Marcos administration has called for a paradigm shift in the West Philippine Sea, and we're all sort of watching to see what that might look like. And so, will it look like more assertion or less assertion? You know, will it, or, or maybe more assertion or less public assertion? So I think watching the the, uh, the Philippines to see, you know, what is the future of embedded journalists on those ships? Uh, will there be more or less of them or will they keep that static? Will they actually go ahead with some of their discussed tactics of just going out to improve their West Philippine Sea outposts? And ultimately, the real sort of the, the pain point, the rub point of Second Thomas Shoal, what happens to the Sierra Madre? What happens to that old rusty ship 
where every month, month and a half or so, there's some kind of resupply that is generally opposed. And we see all of these, these images come back. You know, will that ship be able to sustain? Will it, you know, what could a large storm wash it away? And will there be a Chinese move against it? Or will the Philippines move to reinforce it? And how long will the world be sort of not quite outraged over the fact that a large country is effectively blockading a smaller country's outpost? And somehow we all kind of grew comfortable with it over a long period of time. And, you know, th this past year has reminded us that that really is kind of an outrage. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. So I think those, you know, the, the Sierra Madre is, is probably if there's one point uh, it's second Thomas Scholl and that and that situation is probably the one that has probably the most obvious potential for becoming a, a flashpoint. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Where can we find you online and uh, what are you working on next? The site is sealight.live and we have we keep an active blog uh, where we talk about things that, that, that are current. We, we have a resources page that if you're researching South China Sea issues, I think you'll find very helpful because we have direct links to a lot of good resources that you can take a look at. Uh, I'm also pretty active on uh, Twitter or X, uh, which surprises me because this was never something I did while I was in the military. But I have an account. It's at Gordian Not Ray because I work uh, with the Gordian Not Center here at Stanford. So at Gordian Not Ray. And oftentimes, if I don't have time to blog about it, I'll just put uh, screenshots of, of, of South China Sea gray zone activities on that. We are turning into a number of different areas. One is one that we're looking at very hard is can we somehow document and assist in the documentation of environmental destruction in the South China Sea? And there are two real sources of this. One is island building, of course, but the other that goes kind of under the radar is giant clam harvesting, which has actually destroyed a huge number of reefs. Mostly this happens because of Chinese destructive fishing tactics or techniques uh, in the South China Sea. And is there a way to document that, to bring that to light? And by the way, I have to you know give a, a hat tip to the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative by, from CSIS, who's done a fantastic recent article called Deep Blue Scars, that talks about the, the progress of these of this reef damage, and much of it which is almost certainly irreversible, and destroying not just the uh, ecosystem, but a lot of indigenous fishing all across the region. So we're looking very hard at how to look at that from both a legal perspective and a uh, sort of public relations perspective. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. And to the listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.